smoking on gas, got me slung. Chasing Z's, chasing Z's. I've been high up off my ass. Managing beans, managing beans. Flying solo, Mr. Dolo. What you mean? What you mean? Grab control and major time. Do you read? Do you read? Smoking on gas, got me slung. Chasing Z's, chasing Z's. I've been high up off my ass. Myself. Every day, never take a break, still in myself Addicted to the gold, only focused on well, still slide To my nine to five, just to buy the time Till I'm on the rise, blasting off, I'm not asking off This ain't frat rap, tell the haters fuck off I'm shining, so blinded, as a vibe got no diamonds Bro boy, got nothing in my wallet Spend all my green on the green quite often Still flawless, stand tall and say fuck it to me, face calling Time to ride the wave, override the shade Inhale the haze, have a lovely day Hey everyone, I'm Gaz Morgan and welcome to Bizarro Aficionado Season 2, Episode 2. On this episode, I'm joined by musician, occult researcher, and author Vilmar Tall to discuss his latest book, The Gnome Manuscript, Part 1. We also discussed the manuscript's originator, J.H.W. Edelman's, and his possible involvement in secret societies, his stranger sexual interests, and of course the origins, habitat, and culture of gnomes in the Netherlands. So let's jump right into it, and I'll see you on the other side. Will Martel is a Dutch cultural historian and author of The Silent Listener, The Life and Works of J.H.W. Eldermans. He specializes in sagas, myths, and the occult sciences. He has a Master of Arts in Cultural Studies with a thesis about H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon titled Necronomicon from Fiction to Falsifying History, a study of a concept by H.P. Lovecraft. Vilmar became active in the local music scene with bands like Triple Six, Midian, and A Million Strong. In 2017, Vilmar completed work on three more books, which actually are one work in total, The Gnome Manuscript, The Gnome Grimoire, and The Gnome Compendium, all due for publication with Troy Books, all based on the works and collections of J.H.W. Eldermans concerning gnomes. Currently, Vilmar is doing research for a book about Bob Rochelle. He lives in... Kugandazan, I know I probably said that wrong again, <laughs> the Netherlands, with his wife, two children, and a very spoiled rotten cat. Bizarros, please welcome Vilmar Tal. Thank so, you. Thank you for coming on the show, sir. My pleasure. So I, I have to ask, who was J.H.W. Eldermans, and how did you come involved with his collection? Uh, I have come involved uh, with Eldermans uh, in 2012, I think. 
I was re doing research for a book uh, about uh, the Roundhouse Saga, as we call it. Uh, it's a uh, story about uh, house an, an owner of a um, land house in uh, Nunspeet. It's a small village in uh, the middle part of the Netherlands. Uh, how he was performing occult rituals and uh, sacrificing uh, prostitutes or children. They are not <laughs> sure about that. Uh, to uh, the Germanic god Woden. Wow. Uh, those rituals uh, uh, were taking place between 1907 and 1918. And Eldermans was uh, involved in the research uh, that was going on to those happenings over there. And I contacted granddaughter to get more information about him and that's how I got more and more involved in uh, the Elderman's family and one day his granddaughter asked me if I wanted to write a book about her grandfather and that was the beginning of a long research tra trajectory uh, that led me to writing this book. Now Elderman's himself, uh, he was an occultist and everything, so that's what kind of got him interested in the roundhouse and and the research for that. Well, I doubt if he was an occultist. I see him more as a collect. Okay. A collector of magical information, uh, uh, magical objects of, or objects used in magical rituals, but there is no real hard evidence that he was a practicing occultist. Okay. All right, and then he had a pretty extensive collection then between him and uh, Bob Rochelle. He had. <laughs> <laughs> the estimation is that the collection was somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 drawings and manuscripts. Wow, and all these are information that he collected from people in his research and uh, research he did himself. Uh, research he did himself. Uh, he mostly went to the Royal Library in the, in ha the Hague. Uh, I still have a small card of him uh, requesting a certain book to take home. Oh, cool. Uh, you have to understand that um, in the time that Eldermans became uh, a member of the Royal Library, because you had to be a member, and you, you couldn't become a member from walking down the street and, uh, oh, there's a library, I'm going to be a member. You had to be introduced by someone. Um, nowadays, it's much easier. You go in, uh, you make your uh, appointment, and you go in and, and check what you need to check. And he was probably a member from the 1930s. Okay. Until his uh, passing in 1985. That's a long time to be in there. So he was obviously someone respected and... We think so. We don't know because the the Royal Library is very bad in keeping records of the people they uh, gave memberships. <laughs> right, right. Now, were, were part of the was part of the collection destroyed? Did Elderman destroy parts of the collection before he passed? Uh, that's a story that goes in the family. Yes, the part of the collection had to be destroyed. There is an email from Bob Richel to Graham King uh, from the Museum of Witchcraft in Boscastle in which he explained that there were parts of the collection that were uh, separated to be destroyed. And what was in those boxes, we don't know. Right, and we'll never know. There was also a part of the collection that uh, vanished. We think that it was bought by some antiquarian, or we don't know. Hmm. Uh, we never managed to uh, recover that part of the collection. 
But yeah, we we found a, a great deal. Uh, sure. Was in Switzerland, in Switzerland, in a library that were about uh, thirty-two hundred pages. Oh wow! Approximately, uh, took me two days to go through them, all photographed, and uh, I took them home for study because if I had to stay in Switzerland for uh, two weeks, I would be broke. <laughs> no doubt. Switzerland is expensive, really. That's what I've heard. Uh, yeah, and we had a private collector who had about a thousand pages, and there were some small collectors in the Netherlands who had small portions of the Elderman's uh, papers. So, yeah, we, we tried to uh, recover as much as best as we could. Now, was there a connection to him and uh, secret societies? Um, according to Elderman himself, it was. Mm hmm. He named a large number of secret societies, only uh, the funny thing is I couldn't find anything about them. And there is another funny thing. There were secret societies, magical societies in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And although we don't know what they were doing or what they were talking about, we know they existed because they made their existence aware in the newspapers, in the, uh, okay. in, 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 in the the. How do you call it? The, the annonces, the the personals. Oh, gotcha. Oh, okay. So they were they were putting ads out. Advertisement from uh, the this and that society. We are going to meet there. Okay. That's yeah, it. Uh, I I'm, I found one secret society. Bob Richelle was very interested in the, the temple builders. Okay. Uh, they were active in Leiden and The Hague and. That's all I know from those personals in newspapers. Gotcha. Uh, I was looking for some archive in which uh, we know some about the teachings uh, of this master, jo Johannes, as he was called. But mm -hmm. there's nothing to be found. Wow. So it should somewhere in someone's attic, a little box with, with, with all kinds of papers, or worse, or wor thrown away. <laughs> or worse. You, you come across a lot when you're doing research. Oh, I'm sure both things you want to know and probably some you don't. Uh, a lot of papers are destroyed. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Netherlands have a policy for archives that they have to keep them for a number of years. And after those years are passed, they go through the shredder. Oh, man, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, all that information and research and that he put his heart and soul into, and it's just, eh, it's gone. Yeah. Now, it, he, he definitely had a passion for gnomes. So that was something he was really kind of, will we say, obsessed with? Um, you could say that. Uh, he managed to, well, about 387 pages I found in Boss Castle, and there were still some pages in private collections. Uh, of his both granddaughters wow. had a... Uh, what's called Manuscript 5E, and those were mostly uh, his personal uh, recollections of how he got involved in the gnome research. And it should have been somewhere in the 1920s when his parents had a vacation house in Nunspeet. And Nunspeet was, in those days, very popular with the people from Rotterdam, where the Elders family lived and worked. So... It is noted down that Eldermans met with a elderly gentleman, Gerrit Swakenberg. Uh, he was a distributor of fuels. And as they had a vacation house for the whole year, they were there also in autumn and winter. And so they needed fuels to heat the house. 
And this Swapertech told him about gnomes that advised him in financial matters that were still sure. in the forest, but were actually leaving Nunspade because of the mm. masses of people that were coming there to uh, have a vacation or to make a walk in the forest or just for fun. And gnomes and humans do not mix very well. Gnomes dislike humans very much, mostly because of our smell. Yeah. Right. I can't imagine. Uh, but there was also another uh, elderly gentleman, uh, Mr. Van Dam. We couldn't find anything about Mr. Van Dam. Swakenberg I have found in uh, the Nenspeet uh, Regional Archives. Uh, Mr. Van Dam was also a spiritualist, so I have a certain feeling that Mr. Van Dam is also responsible for making Eldermans uh, interested in the subject. And he was also someone who saw gnomes and uh, when they were walking through the moors and the forest, uh, Van Damme would stand still and look in the distance and then elements would ask him afterwards, did you see a gnome? Yeah, I saw a gnome. That was it. And from 1933, this I had from a magazine uh, that interviewed elements in 1980. Uh, I heard that in 1933, I read it, that he was starting his... Uh, actual research by uh, r registering all gnome sightings on a map of the Netherlands. What is what is the role? Gnomes are really important in the Netherlands. I mean, these are these aren't just something you know like uh, poltergeist or something in America where it's like some people talk about them, some laugh about them. But you know, sites where gnomes have seen would be something that people in that area would know, right? Mm, not anymore. Not anymore. More. Um, in the Netherlands, uh, gnomes are also, uh, yeah, if, if I go to someone and I say, I saw gnomes yesterday in the forest, well, he will laugh. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering, whether it was something kind of more fringe then, or it, uh, it's grown to be fringe now, or... It was always a bit of a fringe subject. Uh, and gnomes were the, 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 the stuff of fairy tales, and... If you tell people about gnomes being actual pests or poltergeists, uh, people don't know those stories anymore. And that's because um, we are so, how do you say that, uh, rational. Uh, sure. Everything has to be scientifically explained. And in recent years, we see that view diminish uh, because people are thinking that the scientists are in league with evil politicians and are giving us false information, uh, the, the, the fake news. Uh, very recent uh, development here. Yeah, it, it's funny how they'll, they'll, they'll say, oh, gnomes, you know, that's not scientific. That's not going to happen. But, you know, climate change, you know, that can't exist. That can't exist. Science is wrong. I think that if you look from it from a cultural point of view, gnomes are still very actual, uh, very uh, interesting to look into because uh, because of the difference between the fairy tale gnome and the folklore gnome. Uh, the folklore, oh, okay. folklore gnome is a, a very helpful creature, but it's also a very nasty creature. Uh, if you uh, manage to uh, disgruntle the gnome, you will meet his wrath and it's... Uh, not very pleasant. Uh, there are stories from uh, Brabant where gnomes blind people when they watch them. Uh, in Zeeland, uh, another province in the Netherlands, 
there are uh, stories of people being uh, what they call door de alf geleid, uh, misled by a gnome. In England, they have a certain uh, a similar uh, phenomenon that's called pixie led. And pixie led yes. means that you're lost. And the funny wow, okay. thing was, uh, we were in England for the research for this book in 2016. And we were uh, making a hike uh, over Bodmin Moor with uh, the wife of uh, Graham King, the former owner of the Museum of Witchcraft. And she mm-hmm. warned us that if we were led astray, if we had the, the feeling that we were getting lost, we had to take off our jackets, pull them inside out, and put them on again. That would uh, huh. kind of uh, mess with uh, the gnomes or the pixies' uh, minds. That they, they, they wouldn't understand why we would do that, and they would leave us alone. Now, the, your book, which is fantastic, I got a copy of it and uh-huh. uh, kind of tore through it in, <laughs> in a day or two and keep going back to it. It's really neat, the notations and the drawings, and it gets really specific to things like that they're – uh, gnomes are revulsed by the sign of the cross or church bells. Yes. Um, is that something that was common, or were you uh, shocked to see that as well? No, no, no. In uh, Limburg, uh, south in the Netherlands, there are also these kinds of stories about gnomes that are very afraid of church bells. And reasoning behind that was that gnomes are pagan creatures. Um, some people believe that gnomes had features of the devil in their faces, so they didn't dare to watch them and uh, if they had a gnome infestation no they simply ring the bells of the church right now clear it out clear it out uh and there is a dutch folklorist uh, jacques sinningen who wrote that if you have a gnome in your home and it's being a pest like making knocking noises or uh, uh, making uh, objects disappear or uh, displacing objects you have to call the priest and then the priest comes wow. with uh, holy water and a exorcising ritual, and uh, they banish the gnome from your home. So this wasn't just like uh, you see in fairy lore in Europe. These were almost like a demonic infestation if you had them. Uh, if they were bad, yes. <laughs> if they were bad. <laughs> well, there are also stories about gnomes who uh, clean pots and pans. Uh, there are stories about gnomes who help uh, sow the land or clean your house or... Uh, do chores uh, feeding livestock uh, uh, all if they will all do all that because uh, they know they will get a treat uh, like something to eat or something to drink or a little bowl of porridge there's also a story about a gnome who was really dying for a bowl of lard a a whole bowl of just lard just lard oh that's funny and in in trade for the, the food they managed to do some chores around the house i need to get a gnome yeah <laughs> i need a gnome as well especially now yeah right. <laughs> you can have a gnome assistant that can travel with you on the book tour and carry your suitcases and or at least drag them behind them or not to piss them off and then my luggage is gone You're right. <laughs> so what what would it take what angered the gnomes what angered gnomes? Well, uh, there's one story elements uh, noted down about uh, porridge being lumpy, and the gnomes didn't want <laughs> lumpy porridge, so they smeared it all over the windows of the beer, the, the, the woman who gave it to them. <laughs> and yeah, that, that she was washing her windows, and she was watched by two 
policemen who were just passing by and were wondering what the hell is she doing. So they sampled a little, they sampled a little bit of the, the goo that she was trying to wash off her windows and they brought it to an apo- uh, apothecary. And he said, "From uh, it's porridge, but very poorly prepared." <laughs> <laughs> they they would even the other humans were like, "Man, this is bad porridge, lady. Why would you offer this to gnomes?" Yeah, but if they were tested like that, Aldermans had all kinds of uh, magical solutions to keep them from your land and from your house. I saw that, and there was a uh, quite a few magical scripts that you know there was uh, Ogum and Celestial. Uh-huh. Along with you know the consecration of daggers, wands, things like that. So there was a lot of uh, Western hermeticism that seemed to be a part of the uh, gnome lore that he found. Well, I think it's a part of Western uh, hermeticism he introduced into the gnome lore. Ah, okay. If you're going to uh, uh, study some of those books like uh, Eliphaz Levi's uh, Transcendental Magic, gnomes are known as uh, spirits of the earth. Uh, they're elementals. Yes. But there is no uh, magic how to repel a gnome or how to attract a gnome. The only grimoire hmm. uh, which uh, tells something about uh, how to use a gnome to find hidden treasure is uh, the Key of Solomon. Oh, right, right, okay. Which also would have had this in there. So maybe he was developing a way to be able to magically summon them and use them to specifically find treasure or for however you might need? With Eldermans, it was mostly to find treasure because gnomes were known, according to him, uh, as guardians of valuables hidden in the earth. So that is kind of almost connected to, say, Germanic dwarf lore and things like that. That's fascinating. The funny part is, if you look at uh, the Dutch gnome folklore, part is from... Germanic or Nordic culture, but sure. when we go to the south, it's more Celtic. Oh wow! Okay, so there's definitely a a range of influence there, depending on location. Depending on location, certainly, certainly. Did Eldermans think then that there may be different races or different cultures within gnome lore? Not specific, but if you look at his drawings, you see that there are differences between uh, gnome A and gnome B. Uh, Sure. For instance, he uh, made a drawing of a gnome seen in the south of the Netherlands, which was a very muscular uh, being with only a loincloth and a white cap on its head. And if you check the other folklorists, the gnomes in the same region were scruffy looking, dressed in rags and a a totally different story. So sure. did find some other sources or, yeah, he, he, he kind of made his own uh, known tradition. Uh, I, I'm still not certain uh, how that all worked out, but sometimes it's really uh, frustrating when you check elements and uh, you start checking all the, the old folklorists from the beginning of the 20th century and it doesn't match up. So we're still we're still working on that. <laughs> sure. Which is, you know, it's it's that's compelling in its own that it isn't just the same you know, same repeating and same telling of the same folklore that maybe 
just maybe he was on to something or maybe he was creating it himself he was creating this diversity within the within that culture he was the the, the fun part is also that in the 1960s there was an elderly lady from nunspate who was uh, doing radio interviews about her ability to see gnomes so you understand Eldermont ah. was intrigued yeah no doubt and then did he uh, go and talk to her well, he wrote her a letter. Mm-hmm. Um, the letter is in uh, the archives of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Bosch Castle. And the, the, the funny thing is that two years after that letter was written, that lady was interviewed on national television. And she, the first thing, oh. thing she said was that she had received a letter from a uh, civil servant from the Justice Department from The Hague, and then she said he was not some uh, woozy figure. Right. And he told her that the the gnomes uh, migrated through uh, the forest that lay behind the house of that lady. And uh, the moment when I read the letter and saw that fragment, I knew she was talking about Eldermont, but she never gave uh, one clue if they had met in real life. Wow, but yet there's that connection that was there, or did you think maybe she just tried to bring him up to keep... No, she brought brought him up on more than one occasion because uh, hmm. in 1980, Eldermans was interviewed for uh, the Panorama magazine, as we call it. And in the same hmm. article, also this Mrs. Gerding Lecomte was interviewed. So she really was trying to bring him into uh, the gnome you know, culture because I think she believed that uh, he would make it more viable, more uh, more real. Uh, sure. You have to understand, even in the 1970s, when you said that uh, I was in the forest and I saw a gnome, people <laughs> laugh at you. People make right, you. And uh, that's one thing that I have uh, really taken uh, to myself. If someone tells me such a story, I will not ridicule that person. I will just hear what he or she has to say and draw my own conclusions and not starting from, ha, 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 ha believe in gnomes no no you never never (laughs) do that because you might miss something that is valuable for your own research yeah absolutely and he didn't just stop at gnomes the book also talked about kobolds and uh was it goblins too as well well that was a translation difficulty (laughs) sure i bet uh we have for gnome only about I think six or seven terms. Uh, we can call it a kabouter. We could call it mm-hmm. kabouterman, alferman, eertmenneke, alf. Those are all terms for one and the same creature. But if you translate it to English lore, there they have the little people, which are various races of different uh, gnomes. Uh, in, in Cornwall, you have the spriggan. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't look anything like a gnome as we know it. It's a very uh, monstrous-looking uh creature and you don't want to meet it (laughs) it's a very foul creature but uh yeah i have this book here by uh brian froud which is really compelling to see how many different types of little people the 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 the, the english people have the irish their concept of uh known folklore is so much richer than ours in the book he's so specific about things even down to furniture uh, things like candlestick, things you can use to help see gnomes. Now, is that something that uh, that you're going to expand on in your later books in parts two and three?
three on how to actually contact gnomes that if you want to and things like that? Part two is specifically uh, focusing on that kind of magic. Uh, how- That's fine. And it's not easy either. It's not just, you know, go out here to a fairy ring and turn around three times. These were pretty elaborate rituals he had. Well, the work pretty elaborate uh, apparatuses you had to build uh, with l- certain types of lenses uh, made in them and you had to look through certain uh, types of light before you could actually see a gnome. Uh, was also one uh, kind of a lens he describes that allows you to see where a gnome has been active to bury treasure and it would light up once you look through the glass. Uh, oh, wow. So the air you would look through there, and then the area where the gnome was active would actually light up. Yeah, oh, was wow. also uh, small pieces of a certain type of wood. Yeah, I, I'm currently very much at work with Bob Rochelle, so the, the the gnome knowledge is a bit uh, fading away to the background of my head. Uh, but it was <laughs> right, right. Piece, piece of wood, if you drill the hole through that and you performed some ritual once you looked through through the hole you could see gnomes just walking around right which also connected to european fairy lore being able to find i believe it was a rock with a hole or something like that you could look through to see the fae so there there were definitely but that's more uh the the the, the celtic interpretation uh, you find it in france okay. and england England is very, uh, well, we were in Penzance in Cornwall and we were visiting uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Menon Toll. And it's a very small monument with a rock with a hole in it. And there's a story that if a woman wants to be pregnant, she has to uh, go through the hole and at a certain time of year and a certain hour of the day. And then she might be fertile. But there's also a story about how fairies and gnomes are attracted to those ancient monuments. So every time when I was uh, in the proximity of a stone circle, I was just looking around. And maybe today, maybe today I see one myself, but no. It <laughs> but no. <laughs> happened yet. No, no. I did have the experience. Uh, we had, did you? Yeah, we were uh, visiting minions in uh, Cornwall. That's a, uh, a very small town. It's uh, approximately a restaurant, a cafe, and three houses, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, That's small. <laughs> small. But outside of Minions, there are the hurlers. And two stone circles uh, yeah, mixed through each other. It, it is very, very com- yeah, mysterious to, to, to see it. And the night we returned to our bed and breakfast, I was laying on my bed we were watching a netflix series on my laptop and all the time i had these colors in the corner of my eyes and they were flapping like something was flapping mm. wings and uh i told my wife that there's something in my sight and i don't know what it is so she was kind of making fun of me then uh, <laughs> and of a couple of weeks later, I had to visit uh, my doctor, and I told her that about those lights. And, oh, that's that, that's a visual migraine. Ah, uh, right, right. But but was it? Uh, yeah, because I didn't get a headache afterwards. Uh, when you have visual migraine, that you can see all kinds of sort of lights and, and and flickering things. But once the flickering stops, you get a hell of a headache happen. So I told it to um, was it Joyce? in the Museum of Witchcraft. And I told it to someone the next day and she only looked at me and said, maybe they were telling you something. And that was, maybe. That was it. But That's fantastic. It, it, it was a really strange experience. You never know. You know, as they always say, you look enough into something, eventually it looks back. Oh, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> for sure. Now, also in the book, there's a lot of brooms and different ways of setting brooms up. What did, how did the brooms tie into gnomes? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Eldermans was uh, very keen on, on, on uh, making drawings of those brooms and very strange brooms uh, sometimes, but he was never uh, forthcoming with information about what it was for. The same with the tools. He just draws the tools. He makes a small note on the bottom of the page and we're left there. Yeah. Wondering. Yeah. It's the connection. And the funny thing is that we went to Germany two years ago and we were in the town of Ramsbeck, uh, where is a old iron mine, uh, iron, tin and copper that was mined there. And okay. some of the tools Eldermans has drawn could be seen in an exhibition over there. So those yeah. tools were mining tools. Yeah, the, the amount of tools in here and the diversity of the tools is, is mind-blowing. But I guess if you're a race of little people that protects or hides treasure, you would need mining tools. Uh, yeah, you do. Plus there is the story Eldermans refers to about the uh, Idean Dactyli from uh, Crete, mm -hmm. who were flesh-and-blood creatures that mined Mount Ida on Crete. And once the mountain was depleted, they traveled north and came out in Germany. And Germany, they were mining for a living. And one of the places where they were mining was Ramsbeck. But oh, wow. when I was down in the mine, uh, I was wondering, are those small hallways elements describes, are they still there? And they aren't. They aren't. No, they're gone. They're now we, we don't know if they're gone. Uh, there are two levels of the mine that are... Uh, flooded so we cannot go there but they need but upper two levels of the mine uh, there was no mention of small tunnels made by gnomes uh, i also asked as the guide is there a uh, legend or a a sega about gnomes mining here and he said no the only sega we know or uh, superstition the miners had was that if a woman comes into the mine it's bad luck just like on a ship yeah wow same thing but w women were banned from the mine. If they were in the mine, there was something bad happening. What? Right, right. They were there for a very specific reason, and that was it. Yeah, they were there to work. But, yeah, yeah. you know, in mines, there's always the danger of a collapse of a hallway or uh, some pocket of gas that they can hit and people sure. get hurt. And uh, in their vision, it was caused by when women came to the mines. Huh. Now, when you were uh, researching his collection as book and everything did you stumble upon any kind of uh information about were there marks on the landscape like if you went out to an area obviously the less humans the better but there was anything else about the landscape that the gnomes preferred or that the gnomes created all right this could be a good area to look for them well he named three areas in the netherlands uh, mm -hmm. the first one was twente that's uh, an area near the german border um mostly rural so a little uh little towns and, and uh, small villages and uh, mm -hmm. a lot of really a lot of sites of archaeological archaeological interest like okay. mounds and a ring fort uh, the ring fort uh, the Hünenborg, it was called uh, was very popular with elements he uh, also said that most of the gnome sightings in twente took place at the Hünenborg. and now you know i had to go there <laughs> No, no doubt. And what did you find? Uh, a, a, a big dirt road. <laughs> <laughs> I 
almost got in an argument with my wife. I was telling her, yeah, we had to have to go in there. Yeah, but that's a dirt road. The car will get dirty. Yeah, so? <laughs> well, then we, then, we, then we hose it off. It'll be fine. They don't want to hear that. No, they don't want to hear that. <laughs> but we went down the road, and uh, according to Google Maps, it should be there somewhere. So I got out of the car, started looking, and then I saw a small path uh, along the road going down into a wooded area. And lo and behold, there was the Hüneborg. Uh, and that wow. time, it was still overgrown. So it was very uh, green and, and, and very... Uh, it, it had a very mysterious... Uh, atmosphere. And two years later, I returned to make some more uh, video for uh, the book trailer and take some pictures and everything was taken off. It was one barren wasteland. Wow. Yeah, they did that because they want to do more archaeological research on what the Hüneborg was built for. Right. And three, they have no idea yet. Disturbed the, the, the archives in the soil, as we call it. Uh, I, I don't know how sure. the roots displace objects. and uh, Yes, yes. And that was something that I tried to avoid. But, yeah, I was thinking if you want to avoid it, you should have taken those trees down 70 years ago. But <laughs> Right, because I'm pretty sure the roots have already done what they need to do in destroying features and things like that. Uh, it was a second... Uh, area of interest by Eldermans called the Midstay. It was okay. a uh, depression in the landscape near Nunspate. And it, uh, the, the funny thing is that it was on private land. So to the Midstay, mm. I had to go there early. So I was around uh, 4.30 in the morning. Oh, I, wow. I stepped on my bicycle and I uh, rode the one and a half hour to Nunspate. I arrived there about 6, 6.15, looked around. No button. See, okay, over the fence, and <laughs> that's exactly what I would have done too. Start looking, and suddenly I saw the landscape rise up a little, and I thought, well, that's worth a look. It looked artificial, and yeah, there it was, the midstay. It dropped down about four meters, and uh, it was full overgrown. Mm. Uh, it, it, wow. it looked nothing like the description Alderman's made when he visited it for the first time in the 1920s. And there was a small lake next to it, and the funny thing is the lake is higher than the midstay itself. Oh, but that's it, bizarre. But it never overflows. Huh. It never overflows, and the, the uh, it never fills up with water on the other side. It doesn't. But one huh. time, and it was the same time when I was shooting the videos for uh, the book trailer in the Hüneborg. I also went to the yes. midstay, and uh, in in the meantime, the owner had uh, died, and yeah, the status of the midstay was unknown, so they've taken down the fence, so you could walk there. That's not. That's easy. So I'm mm -hmm. up there. I was shooting my video. I uh, made the video, uh, shut down the camera. I turned around to walk through another area, and there was a giant splash next to me. I don't know what it was. I heard a big splash, so I ran around to see uh, through a clearing in uh, the foliage uh, what was causing the splash, and uh, nothing. Nothing. So nothing. Wow. Walk, no deer, nothing. Yes, yeah, so this was Not a pretty big. sizable splash. This wasn't just like, you know, a frog jumping in or something like that. This was a large scale splash. It it was it was a Bigfoot kind of splash. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> and then just nothing. They Bigfoot in the Netherlands, so Right. <laughs> no, it, is, it 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 was something big. 
but I have no what it was. It, it could swim really fast. My goodness. And that's in, so this this place is like a just a a dent in the ground, like a a dugout area. Well, there are pictures in the book, uh, yes. the the captured locations, and although you cannot really, the, the the pictures don't do it justice. You have to see it with your own eyes. And I know on your uh, your YouTube channel, you actually go out to some of these places as well, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I will definitely put yeah. all that in the show notes so people can go and check that out and uh, where to get the book and things like that. One of the uh, st- really strange parts of the book is uh, this little bug. I believe it was called the uh, Nopa Pados, Napa Pados, the uh, N O P A P A D O U S. The next book will elaborate on that much more because mm-hmm. it is a, a sigil you have to make on the skin of a white goat. Oh my goodness! And you have to wear that on your heart to make sure that the gnome will not get you once you have completed your operation to unearth treasure with the aid of a gnome. Because once once, once the gnome is uh, free from you, he will try to get you. Right. And, no puppet. and the, the, the symbol beneath it uh, prevents the gnome of extracting its vengeance. I, I don't think it was used to say, uh, okay. you, to write it down. You would write it down, okay. According to the Key of Solomon, you had to write it down on uh, parchment of a white goat. Wow. Well, let, let me go to my book case. <laughs> I see it right here. The Key of Solomon. Yeah, I have an extensive library right in front of me. Um, okay. Eventual co-workers have to wear a belt made from the skin of a recently killed goat. Hmm. I'm trying to translate it from Dutch. Sure, sure. (laughs) Uh, On which, with the blood of a dead man, and that uh, man has to have died between July 10th and August 20th, when the moon is in Leo... Um, the next words and figures written down, and there's no papadus with the symbol, uh, or, or a bit of a phallic symbol uh, on the side. Huh. And in this way, all the co-workers are protected from the horrors that uh, go along with these apparitions and can work safely. Wow. Because you, you don't have to say it, but you have to write it down. You have to have it on that. It's on your right chest. Right chest. On the right side of the chest. Wow, that's complicated. Um, <laughs> that's, this, this, is, this is not an undertaking for a weekend. You know, this is a career. No, this is uh, something you have to plan a year ahead. Minimum. And the chapter is called How to uh, Obtain Treasures That are owned by spirits who are called gnomes. Huh. Where would they get the treasure? Was it theirs, or were they taking it from people that that angered them? Or oh no 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 no. Um, people um, are kind of silly that way. Uh, <laughs> when war is coming, 
recently they discovered a few uh, coin treasures uh, from uh, a Celtic tribe called the Eburones yeah. in the Netherlands. And uh, they were wondering why are these treasures here buried? And they discovered in a book by uh, the Emperor Julius Caesar that he had decimated the Eburones in a big battle. And so the archaeologists were wondering that if these treasures were buried because war was coming. And wow. It has been recorded that people indeed buried their valuables before uh, some army was on the doorstep. And if they survived the war, they could unearth their valuables again and their money and live on. And these people were apparently killed or fled or anything that, that could happen to them. Right, because they weren't able to come back and get what they dug up. Ah, uh, no, not, not, not if the Romans are roaming that area. So it, it was believed gnomes indeed buried such sites or they were attracted to guard treasure that someone had buried until the time he got back. Huh. If he didn't come back, the gnome in some cases, try to attract attention from people because it was bound to the treasure and oh. it wanted to be from it. Gotcha, okay. Now, so gnomes were also known for appearing to people suddenly and dancing, making faces and uh, making all kinds of jumps and, and, and uh, just to attract the attention and then starting pointing at the earth. There was a story of a woman uh, who lived in uh, the Pale area, that's in south of the Netherlands, and she had a little house in the forest, and every day when she had to do her groceries, she went the same trail to the village. And every time on a certain point along the trail was a gnome who was walking around, along with her and starting making faces and dancing and really attracting her attention. And she didn't understand what he was doing. Uh, she right. didn't get what he wanted from her. And years after the lady died, the, the land was bought by someone who wanted to build a house there, and they started digging at the place where the gnome approximately danced. And they found the foundations of an old farm, and in those foundations was a jar with silver and gold coins. Oh, wow. That gnome was trying to get her attention for. Huh. That's fascinating. So then you actually have this this concrete situation of here this gnome was sighted and right here actual silver was found. So that's fascinating. Okay. He never gave the source away, so we couldn't verify his story. Oh, gotcha. There are a number of such stories that he collected. And, well, he must have been onto something. Now, was, but, there, yeah. was there any proof that... Eldermans himself found anything? No. 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 Um, there's even an entry, uh, which you will read in book three of the trilogy, uh, where he starts um, reflecting on his uh, gnome research. And uh, then he says, uh, I cannot find one single shred of belief in myself. Now I'm 42 years old. Hmm. That must have been during World War II that he wrote it down. Right. In his late 
if so around the 1970s when he was retired uh, people have testified that they heard him say that gnomes do exist and that there are certain areas that need further research to uh, make sure that gnomes indeed live there. Uh, there was a small entry he made about uh, uh, people being ridiculed for their belief in gnomes, but if you look at the evidence more carefully, you might come to another conclusion. So uh, at 42, he was a non-believer, but he kind of evolved into a believer. Do you ever wonder that maybe there was something he found and that was in the destroyed parts of the collection could be could be we yeah. don't don't know what this destroyed collection was about right um bob Richel thought that there was correspondence between okay. him and societies well i have written well every secret society i could think of uh like the ordo templi orientis uh, mm-hmm. about if they knew elements and Everywhere I got the same answer. Uh, we have never heard of Eldermont. So right. Huh. We don't know if correspondence uh, had taken place. I have found evidence of correspondence of Eldermonts with a certain Mr. Montenberg okay. that is missing. Uh, I found that in the archives of Mr. Montenberg himself that he had various letters from Eldermonts and that he has written Eldermonts various letters back. And those letters are never found in family archives or in other archives. So those are among the papers that are destroyed. And wow. There are, um, it was Bill Bosman, uh, his former neighbor, uh, uh, the son of his former neighbor, who came visiting practically every day. Uh, he was also involved for a little while with Elderman's daughter. Oh, okay. And he remembered one drawing Elderman's was making, and it was a very specific drawing of two SS officers who were abusing a woman. Oh, man. I've never never found such a drawing, so I think those were among the destroyed parts as well, because, yeah, how do you explain such a drawing? Right. He might have his reasons, but we don't know his reasons. And Bob Richel had spoken about a box called Psychopathia Sexualis, mm-hmm. um, which is about uh, deviant sexual behavior. Right. It was a book by uh, von Kraft Ebing. And I have read the book, and if he made illustrations according to that book, I can really understand why he would, would destroy that. Right, right. Now, he, uh, there, was, there was suspicion that he had kind of a odd sex life, too, wasn't there? No, he had an odd sex life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, was in Harlem. It's a city southeast of here. And there we have the regional archives of uh, our province. Mm-hmm. And in those archives was a small box by a uh, Dr. Henriette Heimans. And Eldermans had mentioned her name think 15 to 20 times in his works so i thought well let's take a look you never know what you find all right and uh, mr uh, mrs heimans was also a parapsychologist so 
she was a member of the Dutch uh, Society of Psychical Research. Uh, she also uh, performed research herself, uh, mostly with automatic writing. Um, and I was going through her, what, what was called the parapsychological papers, and, well, there was no evidence of Mr. Eldermans there. Uh, most of those papers were dated in the 1920s when he was not living in Almelo. He would live there mm. from 1936. At one point, I was going through the correspondence, a little folder, and I was skipping through it, looking for Mr. Elderman's handwriting, because if he knew her, he might have written her. No letter of Mr. Elderman's. Hmm. And I was going through the next folder, but there was something in the back of my head nagging me. It, it didn't feel right. So I took the folder back again, and I started looking more carefully. And at one point, I saw a name, Bill Bosman, and I thought, oh, what are the odds? That's the son of Elderman's neighbor. Hmm. I looked further, and Gerda. Gerda was his daughter. Oh. That, tri that triggered me. So I went to the last page. The letter was from Elderman's his wife. Oh, wow. And I wasn't really accustomed to her handwriting. Right. But subconsciously, I registered something. Yes. That was bugging me. <laughs> that, that gut instinct of saying, all right, there's there's something here. You have to go back. Yeah. When I read that letter, it was a very open-hearted letter. So she was very well acquainted with Mrs. Heimans. Mm -hmm. uh, she also called her by the name Zus, which was a nickname for her by her family and her very close friends. Okay. So we can derive from that that Mrs. Eldermans and Miss Heimans were very close friends. Okay. And she was beginning the letter with uh, that she had a surgery previously and that she had wished she never woke up. Oh. Yeah. Now, that's one thing that you start thinking, okay, here is something interesting at work. Right. Uh, then she was uh, a bit scornful about the fact that the hospital had asked her husband for permission to perform the surgery. And it was my husband of all people. So there was something wrong there. Yeah. And when I went down the letter, I saw the line that she knew from 1935 that Eldermans was having a large number of affairs. And those affairs were sometime of a sadomasochistic nature. Uh, sadomasochism is a very uh, recurrent theme in the Alderman's collection. Um, also, with all kinds of tools, sadomasochism never heard of, but <laughs> right, right, right. Then maybe he was inventing himself. I think so. I think so. But uh, there was a special kind of uh, a bridle that needed to be attached to the penis, and <laughs> showed, showed. I showed this picture to people who were. Uh, really involved in uh, BDSM, and they were all telling me, I've never seen such a thing, never. That could be a whole book on its own. Some people were inspired to make one of their own. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure they were. Now, do they think that that procedure that she had was, I'll say, connected to Elderman's? The procedure? No, it was a gallbladder operation. It was gallbladder? Oh, okay. I didn't know if it yeah. may have been 
you know, connected to a uh, whether you know, no, I thought they were having an affair or. Well, uh, later on in that letter, she wrote that uh, she had spoken to a lawyer friend, and uh, she had said to her, "Oh, man, a woman, live a little." <laughs> uh, friend, he can he can hold it against you. Yeah. Uh, if 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 he isn't interested in you anymore, it makes you it, it frees you from obligations. Right. And actually, how she kind of led her life from that point on. Huh. So she started to look for a job for herself. Uh, she stayed married to him because of uh, the risk of losing her pension. Sure. And Mi- Mr. Elderman's his girlfriend was living with them in the same house. Oh, jeez. Yeah. My I cannot goodness. That how, 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 how such a household... I, I read a letter. Elderman's daughter, uh, that um, his wife and his girlfriend, if they even if they agreed, they were always yelling at each other. Oh, so it should be really tense atmosphere there. So maybe all this was able to give him that escape, you know, to be able to go into magic and into gnomes and to be able to draw, and that was kind of pull him out of this life he's created for himself. That's one explanation. Yeah. Yeah. That it was his um, own personal fantasy world, a world in which he could uh, uh, submerge himself from everything around him. But if it's only a fantasy world, why make such an extensive collection? Uh, it, right. it doesn't. Uh, no, there has to be more. It takes it takes effort. It takes discipline, um, and and it takes a certain type of fascination you need to have for the subject you are studying. Oh, absolutely. And so him him retreating into a world of his own, yeah, I think it's part of the explanation. I don't think it ex- explains everything. Sure. But he's created such a rich world. I mean, there's even down to you know, how many different types of just I don't know, hats <laughs> that they would wear and yeah. and furniture and and the culture themselves and interactions and it, it's so rich and it's such a neat and fantastic world that that's here there you want it to be real you know whether it is or not i guess i'll never know well you but you've now only seen a third part of it right yeah i can't even imagine i can't wait for the next books and we'll definitely have you on for them too there's so much well, I want to inter- <laughs> Absolutely. And so what was the most shocking and surprising thing for you when uh, researching either you know, Elderman's himself or you know, the known manuscripts? Oh, that's a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2012, there was a book published uh, by some compatriots of Elderman's. Uh, they, they called themselves the, the Roundhouse Group. And they had a chapter with a life description of him. And the, the, the most shocking thing to discover was that nothing they wrote about him was true. They start, he was born, he was born in Rotterdam in 1904. No, he wasn't. He was born in Enschede. It's 200 kilometers more to the east. So you cannot say from all, oh, well, it's, it's a few miles. No, it isn't. You're on the wrong country. 
Um, then they start with uh, that he was uh, enlisted in the army and nay, he was um, going to the sports academy. And after that, he chose a career in the army. It was the other way around. He was in the army first. And when he was fired from the army, which they also didn't mention, uh, he was going to the sports academy. And the reason why he was fired was uh, because of personal uh, misconduct. He didn't behave. Right. <laughs> I get that feeling that this was uh, that was normal for him. Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> they also wrote that he made it to lieutenant in the army. He was corporal when he was fired. That's a big leap. <laughs> That's a very big leap. Yeah. Uh, he moved to The Hague, where he started working for the Justice Department, and he lived there through World War II until the end, where he moved to Almelo. Well, he was in Almelo already when World War II broke out. So they just—they didn't even care. It was just sloppy, sloppy research, and they're like, throw it all together and put it out there. Oh, it—it it was one of the starting points, and uh, for me, sure. Well, yeah, you're, you're sitting there with people you think have done research, and yeah, you're actually uh, back on base one. Oh my God, that must have been frustrating. Not as much as uh, realizing that you have to let go. You're right. It was actually what I did. Uh, nothing is true. I will start from scratch. Right. So I start looking uh, to the, the, the records themselves and where they would lead me. So right. uh, I came across a newspaper article that he was a probation officer. Okay. And I knew. Probation officers had their archives in Chertogebos in uh, the south of the Netherlands. Hmm. So I went there, and indeed, I found elements uh, from 1931 till 1945, and after that, he was gone. Wow. But he was a probation officer in 1954, so there should have been something. Right. There should be some kind of list. Yeah, but there wasn't. There's just nothing. No, oh no, no, no. We, we we've got we've got the the, the beautiful power of serendipity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was in the Hague to check uh, the, the the military records of Eldermans, and I was going through uh, the catalog, and I was looking at one small box uh, that said uh, "State Probation Office," and I had something like, uh, "Well, I'm I'm here." So uh, the, the 10 minutes that it will take to uh, go through that box, uh, I can manage it right now. So I asked for the state probation office archives. And there he was. There he was. There he was. He was um, out of the service of the uh, probation officers Netherlands, and he became uh, a part of what we call the probation council. Uh, you have to understand that uh, probation work in the Netherlands in the 1910s and 1920s, when it started, uh, was all based on ideology. Right. So you had the you had the Protestant probation office, you had the Catholic uh, probation office, oh, you had wow. the Salvation Army probation office, you had the Scientific probation office, and all those probation officers were working on their own, and there was no oversight of what they were all doing, and there was no method that they uh, 
commonly used. So what the probation council was doing was making sure that all those various probation offices started working according to one method and they would oversee uh, all the reports that were made by these various offices. And that was what hmm. Elements' job was. Wow. So you kind of liaison yeah. all these different offices. Yes. Um, the various probation offices were combined to one probation office in the Netherlands. That was in 1983. And by then, Elements was already retired. Hmm. And then did... Uh... In his collection, then, was there his research for the Roundhouse mystery still in there, or was that, that some of the lost collection? A few pages. Mm-hmm. One page that's in the, the current book, uh, part one, uh, where he writes about uh, uh, the, 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 the very confused uh, Roundhouse papers, uh, which should be the letters Mr. Montenberg has uh, sent him, mm-hmm. because Montenberg was a very confused mind. Right. Uh, um, there are some notes in the Swiss collection uh, concerning uh, Nunspate and the Roundhouse and also about a uh, research he did in the 1920s uh, with uh, Professor Dr. Ten Haaf, a very famous Dutch parapsychologist, uh, about a cult that was active on the Northern Veluwe, okay. especially Nunspate. So he was referring to the Roundhouse mystery. Uh, there's also a note where um, uh, he defines uh, pan-Germanic uh, occultism, and he specifically writes down C. Frank van Vloten and the Roundhouse. But those are just the small little treasures that you will find in his papers. Um, if he really had done such research, it is either destroyed or it right. never has taken place. Now, is there a lot of research other than his that have been done on Roundhouse? Is it something that you people can research, or is it just kind of one of those vague things that are out there and not a lot has been written about it? Well, when I was doing my research on the Roundhouse, uh, I came across uh, a lot of, um, how do you call it? <laughs> <laughs> a, lo- a lot of things didn't make sense. Right. Uh, Mr. Van Vloten, uh, according to this group, that was researching him uh, was a pan-Germanic sympathizer. Mm-hmm. And there were all these kinds of things uh, he was doing that I could not uh, relate to him being a uh, very German-minded man. Uh, he was very concerned with uh, Belgian refugees that were in the Netherlands during 1940, 1918, the, the Great War. Mm-hmm. Um, if he was more German-minded, he couldn't care less. Sure. Uh, he was teaching his sons to speak French. Oh, that's well, odd. I, I can tell you one thing. Uh, if there was one people the Germans hated... If it was the French. Yeah. In uh, the end of the uh, 19th century, they had built a statue for uh, uh, Arminius de Gerusker. Uh, it was a, a Germanic tribes uh, uh, overlord who actually uh, managed to unite some tribes and to... Uh, give a devastating blow to the Roman legions and uh, for the German people in the 19th century he became a sort of national hero right. so they erected in uh, Detmold a statue for him about well, would it be 50 meters high and it was Arminius lifting up his sword and his face was facing France huh. now that's not a uh, token of uh, appreciation that is no. real. That 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 that's that a declaration of war. Right. The the, the German French difficulties were uh, made more uh, apparent by uh, the, the war they fought with France, uh, which ended in a 
very uh, humili- humiliating defeat for the French in Sedan in, in France. Uh, mm-hmm. The Germans uh, seized part of France as their own, uh, the Alsace-Lotharingen region. And the French have been brooding on vengeance for that until World War One broke out. So him teaching his sons French, no, I cannot match that to a German, pro-German right. attitude. That's um, confusing. No, no, no. It gets more confusing uh, because the, the, the German nationalist occult groups had all one thing in common with each other. Uh, they were very, um, very racist, very sure. uh, nationalist, uh, eugenics, uh, pure white race. <clears throat> and now um, you may you may guess what elements uh, second of the uh, elements uh, Mr. von Floten's second wife came from. Belgium. Indonesia. Oh, what? Oh my gosh, that's yeah. random. He had two daughters with an Indonesian wife, uh, which, according to pro-German uh, people, was a, a sin. Yeah. Uh, you cannot uh, mix races because it, it weakens the race. Well, for floated uh-huh. the mind, uh, and from his daughter, I uh, understood in a letter that uh, it was a loving marriage. So... Do you think these rumors about him then were just made up to discredit him, or how did he get tied up into that? It, it gets more funny. Okay. Um, the, the, this group uh, also were uh, discussing the rituals that were uh, performed in that region. Uh, in the beginning of the book, they tell, we have found the occult agenda, which Mr. Van Floten has used to perform his dreadful rituals. And once you progress in the book, there is a sentence that says, um, in these times, we cannot uh, establish what kind of rituals have been performed. Sorry. <laughs> So you have a secret occult group with rituals that no one knows what they even were. No one knows what they even were. There is an expert on pan-Germanic cults in the Netherlands, Theo Paimans, uh, who asked if they had documented evidence of this pan-Germanic group they were describing. And the answer was, no, we only have three spoken uh, testimonies to support that. Well, in... History signs, that's weak. Right. Oh, yeah. And they have no primary connection to uh, it at all. Well, the fun part is if you read those three spoken testimonies, they differ from each other. There is no uh, common ground uh, where you can say, okay, this is the type of occult agenda they were following. Uh, person A says this, person B says something totally different, and person C uh, is more elaborating on her psychic visions of those days then that she actually gives us information about what kind of uh, society or cult has uh, performed those rituals and then maybe that it was just a cover for something else completely oh no oh no i think it was very boring what happened there oh no <laughs> it's even worse I think it, um, if you Follow the stories. Um, the stories start in 1965. Before that, you can't find any trace of such events. That's odd, because yeah. our, if there are rumors, they will eventually come out to the surface in no time. Oh, yeah, with, for sure. With a population of about 30,000 uh, living souls, I bet it would have taken three weeks <laughs> yeah. before the stories would come to light and... Uh, it would have taken a year before someone writes it in the, new, in the newspaper. And you should have found much and much more than only uh, spoken testimony. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it is a mystery. It's a mystery that just keeps getting stranger. Well, it keeps getting stranger because there are a lot of people now uh, trying to uh, unearth the secrets, like they say it, uh, and, sure. and are stories thrown into it that if, if you check the facts, they cannot be true. Uh, for instance, um, there was a woman claiming that a certain princess of the Dutch royal family uh, has been to the roundhouse. Well, the roundhouse was demolished in 1967. The princess was born in 1968. That does narrow it down. <laughs> no. Uh, oh, my there was goodness. One who said that Prince Bernard from the royal family was one of the founders of that house. The house mm-hmm. was built in 1906. Prince Bernard was born in 1911. Uh-oh. How could he have founded the house when he wasn't even born yet? Right. So that's that that's kind of the the, the people you have to deal with nowadays. Yeah. And it gets really it gets really exhausting. Oh no doubt. Experience with Eldermans. Uh, there is one certain person who has it in for me every time, and the only thing he has read about Eldermans was a thesis written in 2009 and because he read a thesis of 90 pages he is just as big as expert as me oh yeah you know how that goes yeah. no so no. <laughs> it's all back and forth and, and at, at one point i said i'm not going to reply to you anymore because yeah a you don't want to listen uh, b you think you know it all better yourself and please go ahead right by all means do your own research and yeah. Show everybody. Well, do your own research. Go to Switzerland. Go to France. Go to England. Go right. to archive in the Netherlands uh, because it, it, it took a lot of travel. Oh, no doubt. I've been in archives in The Hague, uh, Rotterdam, Tilburg, Sertogebos, Doetinchem, uh, Nijmegen, Arnhem, uh, Nunspeet, Almelo, Enschede, Leeuwarden. Well, list goes on. Man. <laughs> But he read a thesis, you know. That, <laughs> but like I've had I, you I've, on for. Oh, go ahead. I've been all around the country. I've seen the original pieces. So right. Please don't think that if you have read one thesis that you know it all. No. Plus, the thesis is wrong on a lot of accounts. Sure. Oh, it's always yeah. something, right? There's it's always, always somebody. something. Yeah. But look, Vilmer, thank uh, well. you so much for coming on here. Um, had you on a little bit over an hour now. Uh, this is. I want to give you a chance to uh, plug anything you'd like to plug and put it out there for our listeners. Well, uh, thank you for your time and uh, to give me a, uh, a small stage to present uh, the book uh, or the books that uh, I've written. Um for the American listeners, uh, the silent listener will be published in America in a month by Llewellyn. That's exciting! Um, I can't wait to read that. Yeah, it is, and uh, it's it's for a reasonable price. You don't have to pay the postage from England. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, that's even better. <laughs> that's even better. And no manuscript will also be published in America by Llewellyn. Uh, I've heard. Oh, great! So I sh- well, I should say keep an eye on the Llewellyn website. Uh, March eighth is uh, the publication date for uh, the silent listener. Okay, great. I will uh, I will get those links and I'll. Curious what people find it. Uh, you can find me on Facebook if you want to drop me a line. Please do. Definitely, and I will uh, I'll put these links in the show notes so everyone can find them. Uh, links to uh, Troy Books as well. And yeah, uh, you should. They can go some people want in editions, the, the the nice editions. You can uh, get them at Troy. Troy Books has the hard covers and the special editions. And uh, if someone wants the special edition for the no manuscript, you have to hurry because they're selling out fast. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Troy puts out some gorgeous editions of their books, so I 
Definitely want listeners to check you out and to check out Troy Books, and uh, they're going to find some beautiful additions to their own book collections, and definitely get the Gnome Manuscript, because it is it is beautiful and fascinating, and I, I can't wait for the next ones. So uh, stick around after uh, after we hang up. Thank you again for coming on, Vilmer. I look forward to talking. I have so much more I want to talk to you about between uh, Hitler's alleged escape and uh and ah. elderman's and so uh we're definitely going to have you back on if you're willing because there's so much more i want to talk to you about well i would say until the next time yes sir thank you so much okay thank you so what do you think i mean that was great and the book itself is fantastic it's uh, again, uh, like Vilmar said, it's going to be released by Llewellyn here in the States. I was able to get a copy um, from uh, Troy Books and every and look through it and, and read it. And it is absolutely fascinating. It is there's so much in here from just outfits and culture and, and rituals and just down to the different hats or haberdashery that the gnomes wore and uh, the very, very intricate and detailed long rituals that were used um uh, pieces of culture that were shared between supposedly the na- the gnomes of different um celtic or norse or german uh type elements and everything um their migration patterns through europe uh their tools and um just regular everyday utensils to uh, writing and alphabets and a lot of the alphabets like i said were uh ones i've seen before uh they're magical alphabets whether celtic celtic ogham or um celestial type uh ceremonial magic alphabets and when uh, looking at different types of uh, rituals in here, a lot of the rituals do have a bend to them that's definitely in the Western Hermetic tradition. So the way you consecrate your ritual tools and the way you create circles, things like that, are things I have seen before and, again, are in Western Hermeticism. But just to see the drawings of the different types of shoes and and apparel and everything for different gnomes and their hats and their their faces and it's really fascinating and there are pictures in here as you get to the back of the book of uh, locations and maps and it is a fascinating book i'm gonna uh, put the i'm gonna look up on llewellyn and see if there's information for it on llewellyn's site and if so i will put that in the notes uh, so you can take a look at that. And I believe his first book on Elderman's called The Silent Listener, like you said, will be available from Llewellyn first and then eventually the Gnome Manuscript as well later in the year. But I want to read you from the back of the book. gives you a little bit of background leading up into it. In 2000, the mysterious Dutch Reichel Elderman's collection was donated to the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Bocastle, where in 2003, a Dutch-speaking student assisted in deciphering some of the written materials in the collection. It was during this process that the student discovered a fascinating manuscript concerned with Dutch gnome folklore and alerted the Mertens Institute in Amsterdam, who were happy to receive a copy of the gnome manuscript as it became known on CD-ROM. 
Another Dutch student subsequently graduated on a study of this manuscript, but still there were too many questions and mysteries concerning the information J.H.W. Eldermans collected throughout his life. The staff of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic were most interested in the contents of this manuscript, and so a decision was made to publish a series of books that present translations of the intriguing handwritten content, with comments on the origins of the manuscript and studies of the places described therein. The information was categorized in this first part as origins, habit, and culture, and focuses on where the gnomes came from and what they were doing and what they expressed. The second part will look deeper into the magic concerning gnomes, and then the third book will deal with leftover writings by Eldermans. So again, I will put all these in. I'll put links to both uh, Troy Books, which is a great publishing company producing gorgeous books. If you do collect books, especially in hardback and special editions, you have to check out Troy. Um, and I will uh, keep you updated, and we will definitely have uh, Vilmar on the show again. There's a lot more he can offer and a lot more I want to talk to him about. So thank you for coming along on this ride. I really appreciate you tuning in. And uh, stay tuned. We have some more great episodes for you. And we'll talk to you soon. And again, stay bizarro. Oh, yeah. Smoking on gas, yeah, got me slung, chasing Z's, chasing Z's. I've been high above my ass. Magic beans, magic beans, flying solo, Mr. Dolo. What you mean, what you mean? Grab the trolling, major time. Do we, do we? Smoking on gas, got me slung, chasing Z's, chasing Z's. I've been high above my ass. Every day, never take a break, stealing myself Addicted to the gold, only focused on wealth Still slide to my 95 Step by the time, till I'm on the rise Blasting off, I'm not asking off This ain't frat rap, tell the haters fuck off I'm shining, so blinding That's a vibe and got no diamonds But boy, got nothing in my wallet Spend all my green on the green quite often Still flawless, stand taller Say fuck it to me, face calling Time to ride the wave, override the shade Inhale the haze, have a love